We cannot accurately understand events on earth unless we view them through the lens of God's eternal word. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd open your Bibles to Daniel 8, Daniel uh, chapter 8, as you know, we've been in Daniel for a few weeks and hopefully a few more weeks. Chapter 8 marks a major shift in Daniel's book. Uh, As you know, Daniel is written in two languages, most of chapter 2 and all of chapters 3 to 7, that's where we've been the last several weeks, are written in Aramaic, which is the lingua franca, the language of the Gentile empires. And most of the content of chapter 2 through 7 is all about Gentiles. It's about what God is doing in the Gentile world. All of chapter 1 and the first four verses of chapter 2, and then all of chapters 8 through 12, where we're going to be today, they are all in in Hebrew. They're written in Hebrew, and the content of the last four chapters pertains really to the Jews. So there's a a, a multi-shift, if you will, a multi-focus, a bifocal uh, emphasis to the book. So the central event, as we talked last week, of the universe is that King Jesus is going to return to earth and establish his eternal kingdom. Last week, Daniel 7, we we got an overview of what will happen uh, between Daniel's era, which is about 600 B.C., and the second coming of Messiah, which has yet to come. And we mentioned that we'd been in the times of the Gentiles now for about 2,600 years for an unknown amount of time in the future. So we know the general sequence of events that will occur between now and the coming of the Messiah, even though we know there are gaps in that chronology, but we don't know when. We don't know the specific timing. So here's the key idea of today, and then we'll develop this theme. God accurately predicts history in advance to do two things. One, demonstrate his deity, and two, increase our faith in his sovereignty. God accurately predicts history in advance to demonstrate his deity, and to increase our faith in his sovereignty. Today we're going to look at a very specific vision that Daniel had in chapter 8, and it was really to the Jews through Daniel, and God gave it to them so that his people, the Jews, would understand what God was going to do so that they could live in light of that. God doesn't give us future prophecy for entertainment purposes. He gives us future prophecy, number one, to demonstrate his deity, and number two, to say, be prepared for what I've got for you in the future. So we need to live in light of God's plan and be prepared to follow God regardless of circumstances. So let's pick up the narrative, chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and behold, I was looking... I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. Now, here's the setting of this. Belshazzar was made co-regent, that means co, 
king, if you will, of the Babylonian Empire in 553 B.C. And so this vision, this one, took place two years later, about 551 B.C. Daniel is probably in his 60s at this point. He was born probably in 620, so he's probably pushing 70. The fall of the Medo-Persian, I mean the uh, Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persians would occur in 539. So it's probably about 12 years before the fall of Babylon. Remember Daniel 5, we talked about Belshazzar's feast, the big party when the Medes and Persians were outside the wall. That occurred October 12, 539. That was the night, one night, the Babylonian Empire fell. This was about 12 years prior to that, just to give you some context. And Daniel says, a vision appeared to me, even to me, Daniel. When you look at this, you think to yourself, this guy's 70 years old. He's been the prime minister of Babylon for decades. He has interpreted dreams for the king. He's received a vision from God two years prior. And he still sounds amazed that God would use even him to reveal this future plan. You know, we should be so amazed ourselves every day. Think about it. God has written us a love letter called the Bible. He sent his son to die in our place to reconcile our relation to him. He sent the Holy Spirit to be present with us 24 by 7, to provide, to protect, to teach, to guide us. He's prepared a place in heaven for us that we can live with him forever. Does that not amaze you? Do we live an amazed life or do we kind of go, yeah, I know all that. Really? You need to go back and remember what your life was before Christ. Hint, it wasn't really good. Is it better now? Be amazed, right? We sing amazing grace and sometimes we take the grace for granted. Daniel says, even me, I can't believe God would reveal his vision to me. Wonderful. Now, this is the second vision that God gave Daniel. Just FYI, dreams in the Bible are given when you're asleep. Visions are given when you're awake. Now, this vision that Daniel got was so comprehensive that Daniel did not view this vision as an observer. I think sometimes we say, well, they had a vision. That means he's sitting on the couch and watching the big screen, right? And he sees this vision on the big screen. That's not how it happened. Daniel didn't say, I looked at the vision. He said, I looked in the vision. He said, I myself was beside the Uli Canal. He was inside the vision, which means he was not aware of his present surroundings. There's a big difference. The location of this vision was in the palace of Shushan. It's a fortress palace of Shushan. The Greeks called it Susa. This was a really important city in the Persian Empire. It was located about 230 miles east of Babylon, 120 miles north of the Persian Gulf, and today it's desert. Although, archaeologists have found the ruins of this particular city. When you read the book of Esther, it took place in this city, Shushan, Susa, right? The entire book of Esther takes place in this location. A good chunk of the opening part of Nehemiah, where he's talking to King Artaxerxes, it took place in this city, in Shushan. However, here's what's fascinating. At the time of Daniel's vision, this palace was non-existent. It had not yet been built. 
It wasn't built for a century after this vision. King Artaxerxes, the king, Persian king Xerxes built this palace a hundred years after this vision. So God gives Daniel a vision of a fortress palace as it would look in the future before it had yet been built. And it was accurate. Daniel was in the citadel beside the Ulai Canal. It was a man-made canal, about 900 feet wide. It was a big canal. It was located in the northeastern part of the city of Shushan. And it was designed to carry water east and west. Now remember, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers run north and south. They run from the northern mountains all the way down to the Persian Gulf. And this canal went east and west. The uh, Persians were big, and, and uh, actually the Babylonians were as well. If you didn't irrigate things there, you didn't grow them. So they built a lot of canals. And a 900-foot wide canal is a pretty big canal. So he's beside this canal, verse 3. He says, And I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor is there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnify himself. Now, a ram is a male sheep. They have horns. In this case, he has two horns. One's longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. And this ram is unstoppable. In other words, no beasts can resist his power. In verse 20, we're going to find out the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that this ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. And the Medo-Persian Empire, as you recall, was the second Gentile empire after Babylon. Remember, we talked about Babylon, then we talked about Medes and Persia, then we talked about the Greek Empire, and then we talked about the Roman Empire. So this is the second one. In Daniel 2, remember we talked about the statue? We had the head of gold, that was the Babylonians. The chest and arms of silver, that was the Medo-Persians. That's the same empire. And in chapter 7, we had the, uh, this empire viewed as a bear, as a bear. So these two horns represent two nations that are part of this empire, the Medes and the Persians, two horns, right? And the longer horn represented the Persian side. Now the Median Empire existed before the Persian Empire. They were a little bit south, but the Persians became the dominant empire. That's the longer horn on this, on this ram. King Cyrus uh, led the Persians in the conquest of Media in 549, and then he led the combined army of the Medes and Persians, conquered Babylon, Egypt, Lydia, and so on. So the Persian Empire really controlled more territory than the Babylonian Empire did. And it lasted about 200 years, 539 to about 331. Most empires on the world stage, a couple hundred years is about what they get, and then they disappear. We're at about 245 now, so we're kind of long in the tooth as far as historical empires go. So... God raised up Nebuchadnezzar really for one purpose, to discipline his people Israel for their disobedience. That was the reason God raised up the Babylonian Empire, for that one purpose. God raised up the Persian Empire and Cyrus to set them free to go back to the Promised Land and rebuild the temple. We know that because 150 years before Cyrus was born, the prophet Isaiah wrote down the name of Cyrus and gave the prophecy that God called him. God calls Cyrus by name and gives him his job description 150 years before he's born. Isaiah 44, 28, 
God is speaking. He says, it is I who says of Cyrus by name. He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire, and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. We know from history that Cyrus was stunned when he came into Babylon because Daniel was there, and history says that he showed him this prophecy. And Cyrus was struck dumb that the God of Israel would know his name and write his job description before he's born. And we go, whoa, you mean God knows the future? Yes, and he knows your name, and he called you by name before you were born to accomplish what he has for you to do now. The same as he did with Cyrus. There are no accidents. God has purpose in every life. And we're going to see God right now raising up another king and another empire to fulfill his purpose. Verse 5. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which had been standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Here's the principle. Human beings and human institutions exist to fulfill God's purposes, and they live and die according to his calendar. Human beings and human institutions exist to fulfill God's purposes. And they live and die according to his calendar. Now this male goat, we're going to find out in a few minutes, Gabriel tells Daniel, represents the nation of Greece, the empire of Greece, and that was located to the west of Persia. So this is the third Gentile empire. We have the Babylonians, the Persians, now we have the Greek empire. And Daniel 2, we talked about the statue, this is the belly and thighs of bronze, and the statue dream. And Daniel 7 refers to this empire as the leopard, which is a very successful predator. The conspicuous horn is Alexander the Great. He was the first Greek king following Persia's defeat. And Daniel observed that the feet of this male goat didn't even touch the ground. It was moving so fast, which refers to the fact that Alexander conquered most of the known world in that era in less than 10 years, which was absolutely unheard of. Alexander, as a matter of historical fact, was enraged that the Persian Empire had invaded Greece a hundred years earlier, and he vowed revenge. His army, he had a small army, only about 50,000 troops, and they attacked a much larger Persian force of 250,000 people and defeated them at the Battle of Guagamela on October 1, 331 B.C., so the Persians are fleeing. King Darius III is the Persian king. He's assassinated as he's fleeing by his own cousin, who cuts his head off and delivers his head to Alexander. Alexander is just enraged that a family member would cut his own cousin's head off, so he has the guy tortured before he executes him. You, know? you think you're going to make friends with a king by killing an enemy? Sometimes it doesn't work too well. 
So Alexander conquered the entire Persian Empire in about four years, 334 to 330. And the text says that as a result of that, quote, he magnified himself exceedingly. That means he had such a big head, you had to butter it to get inside the door, right? I mean, this guy was full of pride, you know? You've heard the old saying, success leads to pride, and pride goes before a fall. And the text says, as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, right? It's imperative to remember that every human being and every human institution has an expiration date on God's calendar. They all, we all, have an expiration date in this life, right? So at the height of his powers, Alexander dies in the city of Babylon in 323 B.C. He dies at age 33, no heir. He suffers a agonizing abdominal pain, fever, and increasing paralysis for 12 days before his death. We think it's malaria and alcohol poisoning, although I read an interesting MD article. They thought she, she thought he died of Gillian Barr because of the uh, uh, paralysis. We're not really sure, but at any rate, after he dies, of course, there is a massive power struggle for supremacy of this empire. And the empire's ultimately divided four ways, but it takes 22 years of infighting, murders, assassinations, wars, etc., etc. But they finally divided the empire among four of his generals. And remember, Daniel said, this empire, this, this horn was broken off, and four horns come into its place. This is the four horns, these four generals that inherit this empire. And um, in Daniel 7, Daniel saw the Greek empire as a leopard having four heads. So we have different imagery, but it's pretty clear God's trying to communicate this empire is going to get divvied up four ways among four generals after Alexander's death. So when Alexander had fulfilled God's purpose for his life, God said, time's up, and Alexander left the scene and left everything. So you say, well, what was the purpose? If God used Nebuchadnezzar to discipline his people for their disobedience, God has raised up Cyrus to set them free from captivity and send them back to the land to rebuild it. What was God's purpose in raising up Alexander? Well, it really was to prepare the geopolitical climate for the coming of the Messiah. First and foremost, Alexander stopped the Oriental influence that was sweeping from India and the East from engulfing the Western world. Number two... His victories spread Greek culture and, most importantly, Greek language throughout this entire region. This area had been very, very diverse, a lot of different people groups, and it united these people groups with a common language and a common Hellenistic philosophy. The Romans came over and adopted Greece as the native language of their culture. So Greek was the language of the empire. The Romans built bridges, roads, enforced the rule of law, kept the Roman peace. All of this spread or laid the groundwork to spread of the gospel throughout the empire. We would not have the New Testament written in Greek if it had not been for Alexander. And Greece is probably one of the most precise languages in the world, and that's why God chose to use it to translate the New Testament or to actually encode the New Testament. It's important to understand that people and empires rise and fall according to God's purposes. 
No one's born by accident, no one dies by accident, no empire rises by accident, and no empire falls by accident. God has a calendar for everything. You and I don't understand it all, but trust me, he has a calendar. Daniel now sees a small horn growing out of one of the four horns. So Alexander's gone, the empire's divided into four places. We have four generals running this empire or empires, and there's a small horn that's going to grow out of one of the four. Verse 9. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. An account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground, and performance will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Here's a principle. God causes all things to work together for the good of his people. Even evil things that he hates. God causes, you all know this verse, Romans 8, 28, all things to work together for the good of his people, even evil things that he hates. God allows a lot of things that he does not approve of. Some of our behavior this week would qualify. Yes? He gives us free will. He says, you can behave like this even though I don't approve of it. There's consequences. God allows sin. He hates sin. He gives us free will. So we're going to go through this prophecy, and I promise you will curl your hair. It's not for the faint of heart. And one of your questions is going to be, how could God allow this evil to take place? So Alexander dies. His empire is divided four ways among four of his generals. Ptolemy, one of the generals, took Egypt and Arabia to the south, Cassander took Macedonia and Greece, that's the Greek uh, peninsula. Lysimachus took Thrace and parts, that's modern-day Turkey. And Seleucus took Syria, Israel, and Mesopotamia, that's modern-day Iraq, Iran, the Levant area. So the land of Israel, I want you to visualize this, I probably should have had a map for you. The land of Israel is in the middle, Syria's in the north, Egypt's in the south. Ptolemy runs the Egyptian empire, Seleucids, the Seleucid empire, is in the north. Israel is in between. That's not a good place to be, to be a small country between two major powers. So they were caught between these two empires, and these two empires, Syria and Egypt, were constantly fighting over territory, control, uh, etc. So the small horn mentioned here, this rather small horn, refers to a Seleucid king named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. This is the fourth Antiochus, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He ruled for about 10 years, 11 years, 175 to 164. 
I just give you some reference. This vision takes place in 551. So Daniel's looking ahead about 375 to 380 years. So what Daniel sees here is 380 years plus minus in the future, right? And this ruler comes on, and his name's Antiochus IV, and epiphanies means illustrious manifestation, right? Epiphany. You ever had an epiphany, right? You go, aha, I saw it, epiphany, right? So he claimed to be an epiphany of the gods. He minted coins with his image on the coin, his own face on the coin. This guy had, he was a real humble guy, right? Put his image on the coin, and he put the words Theos Antiochus on the coin. Theos means God, which means God manifest. You want to know what God looks like? Look at the coin and look at c'est moi, and you know what God looks like, right? So this guy was arrogant, to say the least. Verse 11 says that he magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the host. He's talking about God himself. Now, it's interesting that his citizens called him Epimenes. Epiphany means illustrious manifestation. Epimene means madman, <laughs> nutcase. And when you watch about what he did here, I'm not being joking. This guy was wicked beyond comprehension. He was the eighth ruler in the Seleucid dynasty. So Seleucus was one of the generals, and he formed a dynasty. So there's this whole series of kings ruling over Syria, this whole region, and he was number eight in the historical lineage of this hereditary king, right? He came to power in 175. His brother Seleucus was the king, but he was poisoned by his own treasurer, which is, you know, you accountants and CFOs up there, we need to watch you very carefully, right? So his brother's poisoned, and his brother's nephew is named Demetrius, and he was the lawful heir of his father's kingdom after he was assassinated. Well, Uncle Antiochus schemed and stole the throne from his brother's son, Demetrius. And he, of course, rewarded the small group who supported his coup by stealing money from the rich and distributing to his supporters. And you've never heard of anything like that ever happening, you know, right? I mean, you know. So in the vision, Daniel sees this little horn grow up to the host of heaven. And he causes some stars to fall to the earth and trample them. Now, the host of heaven was God's people, the Jews. And Antiochus persecuted the Jews severely. The Seleucid Empire was Greek. And Antiochus wanted a culturally uniform empire. So he drove out the Jewish leaders who were loyal to Judaism, the law, and he replaced them with political appointees who supported his pagan agendas. In an attempt to replace Israel culture with Greek culture, he prohibited Israel from practicing all their regular religious practices. Now, this is important if you want to be a dictator. If you want to change a culture, you absolutely, the first thing you do is you change the people's religious beliefs. Everything follows in a culture based on the belief system of the populace. You can see this operating around the world. If you change religion, if you change tradition, if you change people's laws, then you can change their behavior through propaganda, fear, the promise of government security, all sorts of things. So 
just be aware that Antiochus is going to do a direct attack on Judaism, on their religion, so he can change the entire culture. So in 170 BC, five years after he takes power, he gets into a territorial dispute, a beef with Ptolemy VI of Egypt, and Antiochus invades Egypt. He goes south through Israel, down to Egypt, defeats Ptolemy, declares himself king of Egypt. Interesting that Daniel had seen that in the vision. God told him, this horn is going to grow exceedingly great toward the south. Well, that's Egypt. And on his way back from Egypt, he invades Jerusalem. Daniel calls Israel the beautiful land, and this guy desecrates and defiles the temple and plunders all the wealth he could to finance his campaigns. Two years later, in 168, he invades Egypt again. So he's going to declare war in Egypt. He's got the army there, except the Roman ambassador, Rome is now starting to rise, orders him to stop the attack on Egypt immediately. And Antiochus says, well, I'll think it over. I've got to consult with my cabinet. And they're standing outside. The Roman ambassador takes a stick, his walking stick, and draws a circle in the sand all the way around Antiochus. So Antiochus is standing here, and the Roman ambassador draws a circle in the sand. He says, if you don't give me a decision and you step across the line in the sand, Rome will declare war on you. That's where we get the line, the line in the sand, right? That's where it came from. So Antiochus capitulates. Now he leaves Egypt, and he's humiliated, and he's furious, and he takes out his anger on the Jews. He sent 22,000 troops to invade Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. They burned the city, tore down the walls, killed 80,000 Jews, and enslaved 40,000 women and children. He raids the temple treasury takes the sacred vessels, the gold and silver vessels, to finance his military campaigns. In his vision, Daniel had seen that the host, God's people, would be given over to the horn, Antiochus. Well, that absolutely happened on that day. Antiochus then determined to exterminate Judaism and turn all the Jews into Greeks. There was a very, very faithful high priest, Onias, O-N-I-A-S, Onias, and they, he replaced this faithful high priest with a political appointee named Joshua, who promptly changed his name to Jason, which is a Greek name. So you can tell this political appointee who took the high priesthood was certainly not a loyal Jew. And this Jason constructs an outdoor sports arena right next to the Holy of Holies, right next to the temple. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Well, it was a big deal because all the Greeks exercised naked which was an anathema to the Jews. You covered yourself. That was just modesty. So over time, some of the priests and the Jews joined the Greeks in exercising naked next to the Holy of Holies. And as you can imagine, this corruption of the Jewish religion was by design. Obviously, he wants to dilute their religion uh, and so he can corrupt and control. So now we have the problem where Judaism at this era splits into two camps. You have the Hellenists that are pro-Greek, and you have the traditionalists that are pro-Mosaic law. You think this split of a culture is unique to our current world? No. Divide and conquer has been part of political life for since Cain and Abel, right? Long time. 
So Antiochus forbids the Jews from observing the Sabbath. He outlaws all their feasts and religious sacrifices. He makes it a crime to circumcise their children. Any Jew found possessing a copy of the Mosaic Law was killed on sight, and he commanded all the copies of the Mosaic Law to be burned. He disallowed all Jewish dietary laws. He took the priesthood and forcibly stuffed pork down their throats. He set up altars to idols in Jerusalem. On December 16, 167 B.C., he erected an altar to Zeus, the primary Greek god, on top of the altar of burnt offering outside the temple and sacrificed a pig on it. He then took the bodily fluids from the pig and spread them throughout the temple, walls, floors, ceiling, to defile the whole temple. He then compelled the Jews to sacrifice a pig on the 25th of every month to celebrate his birthday. He took the temple chambers where people came to worship God and turned them into a, a bordello, basically a place of public prostitution, inside the temple, right? Now, in 380 years earlier, God had showed Daniel in the vision that this ruler was going to remove the regular sacrifice, throw down the place of God's sanctuary, and that the host and the stars of the Jewish people would be given over to his power. So 384 years later, everything happens precisely as predicted. Now what did we say? God accurately predicts the future to demonstrate his deity and to increase our faith in his sovereignty. Verse 12 says that Antiochus would fling truth to the ground. Now think about this. If you respect something, you hold it up, right? You elevate it. You look at it. If you disrespect something, you throw it on the ground and stomp on it. You trample on it. Well, that's what he did to God's law. He literally took every copy of the Jewish law he could find, threw it on the ground, trampled on it, and then burned it. Truth is God's word. And Antiochus flung truth to the ground. And you say, well, that's pretty obvious. You know, our culture does the same thing. It may not burn it, but it ignores it. And it calls it a hate crime to speak truth. That's flinging truth to the ground because it's rejecting it. Because people don't like to be convicted. And God's word brings conviction. I very much agree with Pastor Roger. I believe the day will come in my lifetime where Speaking truth from this word will be called a hate crime and prosecuted accordingly. Just get ready. Don't delude yourself. Get ready. Daniel heard an angelic being ask, how long will this transgression continue? How long will the temple and the Jewish people be trampled underfoot by this guy? And another angelic being had mentioned that the desecration of the temple would last 2,300 evenings and mornings before it was cleansed. Just by way of historical data, Antiochus' persecution began on September 6th, 171. September 6th, 171, he deposed the high priest. And it lasted until Judas Maccabeus cleansed and restored the temple on December 25th, 165. That's 2,300 days using a 365-day calendar year. God is not the author of evil, but he does allow it. We must remember that evil is on God's leash. 
Evil is not unrestrained. It's on God's leash, and it's time-limited. God said, this is going to last 2,300 years. One of the great comforts of this life is no matter how bad it gets down here, everything here is temporary. It's temporary. It's not going to last forever. What lasts forever is up there in heaven, and that is glorious. So the Jews celebrate this cleansing of the temple with the Feast of Lights, which we call Hanukkah, right? That's the Feast of Lights celebrated every year, the cleansing of the temple. Interestingly, Antiochus ultimately went insane. I mean, he was insane, but he went insane in Persia, died in 164 due to the disease of the bowels. So um, this man is going to be seen as a prototype of the Antichrist. Verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to me where I was standing, and when he had come, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now while he was talking to me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. Here's the principle. We cannot accurately understand events on earth unless we view them through the lens of God's eternal word. We cannot accurately understand events on earth unless we view them through the lens of God's eternal word. One of the things that happens to people is they look at all the tragedy, all the evil, all the brokenness, all the wickedness in this planet, and they can't stand it. And that's a good thing. The problem becomes is they forget that God is sovereign, and then they say, I'm going to fix it myself. And then they start doing really foolish things like trying to impose justice at the point of a gun or whatever it happens to be because the unrighteousness rightfully bothers them, and it should. But we can't forget that God is sovereign in the middle of this, and that's what we get from God's Word. So when you look at Daniel, he falls down, which is not uncommon for people to fall down in fear or even lose consciousness when encountering holiness. That happened. John fell down. Uh, Isaiah fell down. Happens. And Gabriel comes. Gabriel means man of God. Uh, the Hebrew Geber, G-E-B-A-R, G-B-R means man. E-L-L means God. Gabriel, man of God. And this is the same Gabriel that announced the birth of John the Baptist, Jesus the Messiah, and it says, the man Gabriel. In Scripture, angels most often show up looking like people, like humans. I mean, if an angel showed up as a spirit, how would you know they were there? Couldn't see them. So many times, angels appear as physical beings. They're not. They're spiritual beings, but they appear that way. So God sent Gabriel to explain the meaning of this vision this to Daniel. So God gives us, not Gabriel, he gives us his word, and he gives us something far greater than Gabriel. You have the Holy Spirit. God himself comes to live within us. He doesn't have to give you an angel occasionally to explain to you what's going on. You have the Holy Spirit 24-7, who you can ask, Lord, what should you think about this? How should I see this? 
if we try and view events of earth from our human point of view, we will reliably draw wrong conclusions and therefore will make bad decisions. And most of us carry lots of scar tissue from looking at life from our own point of view and making decisions based on our own wisdom. Amen? Yes. Verse 19. He said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time at the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms, which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Verse 23. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree, and prosper, and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. Here's the principle. It's got some good news, got some bad news. The bad news is Satan and his people always oppose God's plans and God's people. Satan and his people always oppose God's plans and God's people. Here's the good news. God's kingdom is unstoppable. God's kingdom is unstoppable. So Gabriel says, look, in the latter part of their rule, he's talking about this prophecy that he just talked about, this vision is going to occur near the end of the rule of the four horns. In other words, near the end of the Greek empire before the advent of the Roman empire. And he says, when transgressors have run their course... All transgressors have an end date. God allows evil, he doesn't allow it forever. There's not a dictator that is not going to die. Right? Every one of them. No matter how much evil you do, there comes a day when God says, it's enough, you're going to die. He says, near the end of this Greek empire, a king will arise, and Gabriel's describing, of course, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, an evil king who sought to destroy God's people, the Jews. Now, there's a dual look at this, because Antiochus is not only a historical figure, he's also a forerunner. He's a prototype. He's a picture of the ultimate man of sin, the future Antichrist. Antiochus, the historical figure, and Antichrist, the future coming prince that will come, have many things in common. Warren Wiersbe has compiled an interesting list of similarities. Both Antiochus in the past and Antichrist in the future begin small, but they rapidly increase in power and influence. Both Antiochus and Antichrist oppose and blaspheme God with their mouths. Both of them deceive and persecute the Jewish people. Both claim to be gods and put images to be worshipped in the temple. Both impose their own religion on the Jewish people, both are opposed by a believing remnant that knows God. Both are energized by the devil and are great deceivers. 
Both appear to succeed marvelously and seem to be invincible, and both are finally defeated by the coming of a Redeemer. Judas Maccabeus, God used to uh, fight the Seleucid Empire and give Israel 100 years of freedom in 165, and Jesus Christ will come back and end the rule of Antichrist. When you read Revelation, you're aware that there's an enormous amount of parallels between Antiochus, the historical figure, and Antichrist. Except Antichrist looks like Antiochus on steroids. Antiochus did evil on a local scale. Antichrist does evil on a global scale. However, and this is hard to, for us to understand, everything God does has purpose, including evil. Including evil. When you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and our current era, you will see people like Hitler and Haman and Antiochus all intended to exterminate the Jews, God's people. And God let them do evil for a time. And you say, well, how come God lets those people do evil? How come God lets you do evil? Well, I'm not as bad as those people. God, Jesus said, right? All have sinned. All have sinned. Any sin is all sin in God's eyes. Sometimes God uses evil people to discipline his own people for their disobedience. That's what he used Nebuchadnezzar for. God disciplined the nation of Israel many, many, many times by giving them foolish, evil leaders. And we say, we deserve better leaders than become godly people. Sometimes God allows problems, pain, and persecution, matter of fact, oftentimes, to teach us to depend on Him and not anything else. As a matter of fact, God often takes everything else away except him so that we say, Lord, I guess it's just you and me. That's what it's always been. We just trust in a lot of other stuff besides him. And I'm not saying God doesn't use other things. If you've got a medical problem, go see the best doctor you can. But understand, it's not the doctor that's going to make you well. It's God using the doctor or the hospital. And sometimes the doctor says there's nothing more we can do, and then we go, Lord, I guess it's just you and me. That's what it's always been. Right? Your next breath is a gift. God always uses circumstances to draw us closer to him and make us more like Jesus. God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he pressed predestined to what? Become conformed to the image of his Son. So everything in your life that God arranges, allows, is designed for one purpose, to make us like Jesus. Sometimes that involves sandpaper. Sometimes that involves a big hammer and a chisel and pain. But his goal is to make us like Jesus. And here's the good news and the bad news. His love is relentless. 
He loves you so much, he will never stop shaping you like Jesus, regardless of what it takes in this life. And that involves many times pain and suffering and problems and persecution and broken relationships, all sorts of stuff. And right now it's painful, and when we get to glory, we will fall on our face and praise him because his love was relentless. By the way, some of us, most of us, if not all of us, have children, grandchildren, and relationships that God calls us to be relentless in loving them. Relentless. It doesn't matter how they behave. Well, they don't treat me right. Well, you don't treat Jesus right either. Okay? So you go after your children and your grandchildren and your nieces and your nephews and your family members and your coworkers by prayer because the Holy Spirit can go where you can't go. Some of them don't even listen to me. Can you believe that? Even me. They go, yeah, you know. But guess what? The Holy Spirit can go where you and I can't go. We need to love our family members, our friends, everybody God puts in our world in the same way that he loves us with relentlessness. See, it's crucial to remember that all of Satan's attempts to stop messianic kingdoms to come to pass are going to fail. Verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings which has been held is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astonished at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Now, keep the vision secret doesn't mean don't tell. It basically says, I want you to preserve it. I want you to write it down. The Jewish people now know that 375 years in their future, there is massive persecution coming. Do you think that should influence their behavior? You would hope so. When God says, get ready, this is going to happen your way, right? And Daniel is broken. He loves his people and he sees their suffering and he has compassion for them and he says he's sick for days. And I am convicted because God's word often affects me up here and doesn't always affect me down here. And it should affect all of us, all of who we are. So God's eternal plan is going to come to pass despite satanic opposition. God's people should expect trouble and trials as they follow God. In the world, you will have tribulation, right? We need to live in light of eternal realities, not temporal circumstances. So God gives this vision, not just for the Jewish people to let them know that three centuries in the future, they're going to have troubles. He gives it to us to say, I am in control of everything, even evil. And I will use that for my good purposes. And I will sustain you through whatever I call you to go through. Amen? Okay, let's review and then we'll do prayer and praise. Number one, God accurately predicts history in advance to demonstrate his deity and increase our faith in his sovereignty. Number two, human beings and human institutions exist only to fulfill God's purposes and they live and die according to his calendar. When God says, your work is done, baby, you're out of here. You're going home to heaven. And when God says to an empire, you're done, they cease to exist. They fall, right? According to his schedule. Number three, God causes all things to work together for the good of his people. 
even evil things that he hates, he still uses to accomplish his good purposes. Number four, we cannot accurately understand events on earth unless we view them through the lens of God's word. This is why I, I'm, I will continue to harp on this. Read this before you read the news flow on your electronic device. And I, I'll just say it. I, I personally find it's much easier for me to read this in paper. Because when I read it on an electronic device, you know what Satan does? Click here. Click there. And pretty soon you're deep in whatever tragedy occurred in whatever part of the country, right? Because you get distracted and you forgot the whole point was to read God's Word and get His perspective before you get the world's perspective. Read this before you turn on the news or get on your devices. Now, that's not from the Lord. That's my opinion. Very good opinion, but it's just my opinion. <laughs> Bring that to the Lord, too, and find out what He tells you to do. But. And the last thing. Bad news, Satan and his people always oppose God's plan and God's people. In this world, you're going to have opposition. Just trust the Lord with it. And good news is, God's kingdom is unstoppable. It is going to happen. Thank you for coming. It's always great to see you. I love you. We're getting into some really meat and potatoes the next three or four weeks. So be here. Love you all now that you know. Do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.